Well, good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. As we continue in our series focusing on passing on our faith to the next generation to keep them from becoming the final generation, today we'll address the difficult topic of generational sin. This morning, we'll only be developing the topic as part one of a longer series because there's so much misunderstanding on the subject. In our effort to engage in the battle for the hearts of our children, we will find our primary weapon is found in the gospel message of new life to belong to the family of God. Thanks for listening. I was looking at some pictures uh, this past week of my sister's children. She has uh, three beautiful little kids, two girls and a little boy. Every one of these kids, though, has just aquamarine, brilliant blue eyes. I mean, the bluest eyes you'd ever seen. Uh, Both mom and dad, both have blue eyes. And um, in my family, I have blue eyes, and my my wife has brown eyes. And guess what color our kids' eyes are? They got the brown ones, that's right. So I have a two brown-eyed girls in my house and one brown-eyed boy. And, uh, you know, it made me think of all of the traits that we pass on to our kids. Maybe you've got, <clears throat> maybe you've got some height or some lack of height from your parents. Maybe you've got a certain build. Maybe you've got, you know, that little quirker characteristic that you see modeled down. And one of the things that uh, Emily and I really enjoy doing is um, trying to blame each other for the faults of our bad, <laughs> our children's bad traits. Right. So when Sadie doesn't eat any of her vegetables, uh, I'm like, that's, that's Emily, that's your daughter. And uh, we're, we were seated, uh, uh, we were driving uh, to Walmart the other day, and uh, we're waiting at the light. And it's red, and it's red, and it's red. And from the back of the truck comes this little voice, come on, light! <laughs> <laughs> And Emily looks over at me. (laughs) You know, it's not just the good traits uh, that we pass on to our kids. Um, Unfortunately, sometimes it can be negative ones as well. Um, uh, There there was something that Sadie said when we were leaving Walmart that just I felt like was so impactful on this, this topic that we're looking at today, which is generational strongholds is the theme. But we were walking out of Walmart and uh, she's holding my hand and working through the, the parking lot. She's walking very awkwardly. Like she keeps kind of pulling me to the side and then she's slowing down and then she's speeding up and we're getting closer to the truck. And, and then she says, mommy, look, I'm walking in your shadow. Because Emily was right behind her and the sun was shining in the back and it cast a shadow there in front of Sadie. And so Sadie kept trying to step only in, which is why we were kind of meandering around. Um, I thought, wow, that's, that is very uh, um, profound. You know, she doesn't even realize what she's saying, but that's, that is the exact reality. That our children here in many ways are walking in our shadows. And I have had, I've had a lot of people over my time ask me about the question of, sometimes it's called generational sins, sometimes it's called generational curses, I've even heard people refer to them as hexes, and uh, I want to I dispense with some of that, that's not true, but I do want to give some attention as to what it is we're talking about, and the reason is because we need to take God's word seriously. Uh, This isn't just something that has come out of superstition from people's coming and goings in life and and thinking about watching those characteristics. We actually find this taught in God's word. We heard it already in Exodus 20. Uh, It said, uh, 
the one who sins is the one who will die. I'm sorry, that, that's Ezekiel. I've got to go back to Exodus. Uh, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. So, so does God lie? Yes or no? No, he, he doesn't lie. So there is a truth to be found in this. And then I, I want to balance this with another verse. And this one is in Ezekiel. Uh, again, through the prophet writing, the, the one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share in the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share in the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. How do both of these work together? Uh, on the one hand, we have a verse that makes it look like sins of the parents get passed down. To the third and the fourth generation. That God says that punishment will be a reality for them. And then in other places we see, well, actually the children will not share of the guilt of the parents. And I, I want to submit to you, there is a way that we need to understand this. You don't get to heaven by the righteousness of your parents. Nor do you go to hell for the unrighteousness of your parents. Each one of us carries before us an accountability before God to which we will give an account. That's true, as Ezekiel helps us to see. But there is something that's passed down. There is something within the generational uh, spance between parents and children, all the way to grandchildren, that we need to give our attention to. And so I've entitled this, uh, this sermon, Weapons Against Generational Strongholds. I'm, I'm using the word stronghold here in place of what has sometimes been referred to as a curse or sometimes referred to as a sin. Because I think what they are in many of our lives, they are the types of things that seem like we just can't find victory over them. They're, they're the types of things that seem to revisit us uh, late at night when your mind is idle. Uh, they revisit you in your, your darkest moments of depression. They are the discouragement that is amplified by the lies of our adversary, the evil one, saying you'll never make it, you can never do it. And, and what we need to do as a church that wants to focus our attention on the next generation, because you remember, this sermon falls within a series that says we pledge ourselves not to let this generation be the last generation. And that in our effort to really care for our children, we need to take a good, honest look as to what it is we're passing down. And as we do so, uh, to know that God is calling you to war. You ready? God is calling you to a battle. It's, it's a hide and seek type of battle. You know what I mean by hide and seek? What, do you remember you you do uh, eight, nine, ten, and then you'd say, that's how it is. This is what it looks like. The war is going on, ready or not. It's going on right now. And so what I want us to do is I want us to look into God's word and I want us to be equipped with the weapons that we can use to fight against these types of generational strongholds. Uh, this word stronghold, it's a military term. A stronghold, if you can think on a battlefield where you have the two opposing enemies coming together, the stronghold is that place from which the enemy has itself entrenched to attack. And to attack. And though you might bombard it again with arrows, the stronghold seems to never give way. It's very hard to find victory over a stronghold. And that, that's what we're going to address. We're, we're going to pay attention to how these generational strongholds show up. 
and how we as God's people in effort to keep our kids from being the last generation uh, can take up arms and to really find the right weapons to do battle because there is a war that is going on. Our passage is going to be in Galatians chapter 3, but before we get to uh, uh, the book of Galatians, what I want to do for us is I I want to piece together for you four different ways in which there are generational strongholds. Now, let me give a little bit of a warning here. Um, I told my wife I need I need like an hour and a half to preach this whole message, and she, she said, "Okay." <laughs> so I'm I'm breaking this into two messages. All right, Th- this is going to be a part one, and this is going to be a part two. Um, but with that in mind, it's going to be a little theologically heavy, which means. Which means I'm going to challenge you to really try to focus on this one. We're also going to be going through a lot of verses. I'm going to have them up here on the screen. You can scribble them down and go and revisit them. But just everybody is forewarned. We're going to be moving through some heavy territory this morning. So uh, generational strongholds, they come in one of four ways. The first one is what I'm calling a predisposition. Uh, A generational stronghold that manifests itself in your life in a sinful tendency that you are predisposed to. Uh, sometimes we refer to this as a, a bias or, or a bent or a tendency that somebody might have. You can see it in personality characteristics of probably many of your children. Uh, in our world today, this is manifest in sinful patterns uh, through things like alcoholism. Have you ever seen how alcoholism can, can be something that stays with kind of in a family structure because th- that there is a predisposition to it. In fact, the Bible has been teaching this all the way back in the book of Exodus. Do you remember? Uh, The Lord's punishment upon the sins to the third and fourth generation come as consequence of some of the decisions that you've made because you are literally passing down in your DNA a predisposition to certain things. Science has only recently caught up to speed on this in a particular branch of a study called epigenetics. I don't know if anyone's even heard that term before. I'd, I'd encourage you to, to, if you have the time, you could write that word down, epigenetics. Um, epi is a word that means on top of or above. It's a, it's a Greek word and, and genetics, and it has to do with the way that we switch on or off certain genetic markers and genes that exist right now in your DNA by your behavior. So the behavior of the parents is leading and tending towards an amplification of certain genes that you carry within your DNA. So alcoholism is one way that we see that. Some others are addictions. And you can see certain addictions finding their way as a common thread through families. Uh, Anger, uh, self-doubt. Sometimes people who really struggle with their self-identity, that becomes something that gets passed down to their children. Uh, Fear and depression. On the flip side of of these low types of um, tendencies uh, might be pride. If you have a parent who's, who's just just relentless, bold, and, and very overly confident, sometimes that trait uh, gets passed down as well. Um, or being judgmental. You, you can maybe identify that in certain parents or grandparents and how that maybe gets passed on to you or your siblings. Um, uh, sexual immorality. Uh, to see that of its ver- variety of forms. To find that certain people become predisposed to one or the other. We actually have a, a picture of this in God's word. And the example that I would give you is Abraham. <clears throat> Abraham I have a story here in Exodus chapter 12. I want you to see Abraham's tendency and how that tendency gets passed down. Genesis 12, the text says, Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. 
As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And then they'll kill me, but they'll let you live. But that kind of seems like um, it's a little of a backward compliment, don't, don't you think? Like, it's one way of seeing your wife so pretty that you're going to pretend she's not your wife. I mean, bad solution here, Abraham. Uh, look what he says. He says, um, they will kill me, let you live. Uh, say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared uh, because of you. Uh, so if we fast forward a little bit, go down a few more verses, you, you see this now happening. Um, but the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarah. So Pharaoh sub- summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram and his men and his sent him on his way and his wife and everything he had. Now, if Abraham didn't learn this one time, he repeated it again. If you fast forward eight chapters, same thing happening now with King Abimelech. Now Abraham moved on from there to live in the region of the Negev and live there between Kadesh and Shur. For a while, he stayed in Gerar. And there Abraham said of his wife, Sarai, she is my sister. And then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. Now, if you want to get technical, uh, they, uh, Abraham and Sarah, they, do, they, they are like stepbrother and sister, which is a little bit awkward. So he's kind of telling the truth. But you can see clearly what he's doing. Here, when, when confronted with a fear that's in front of him, when getting nervous about what lay before him, does he, does he tell the truth? No, no. no. He's got this predisposition in his heart to lie. Or to try to save, save himself by pushing it off just a little bit. I, I want to say, I kind of feel like we all have that in a way. In fact, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, you see this characteristic in, in Adam and Eve. Do you remember? God shows up. Uh, where are you? He, he says to Adam after having sinned. And, and does Adam own it? Does he take responsibility for what he did? No, what's he do? Yeah, he, he, he pushes off the blame again, out of fear. Well, let's see if this gets passed on to Abraham. Abraham's son is Isaac. If you go to chapter 26 of Genesis, watch what Isaac does. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. Because he was afraid to say she is my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca because she is beautiful. I mean, it just kind of shows you a little bit of the culture they lived in. And maybe just these women were just extremely beautiful. When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. Wait a minute. Dad ain't no sister. <laughs> so Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, she's really your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? And Isaac answered him, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. This continues to get passed down. This, this little trickery, this little fibbing that goes down. In fact, uh, Isaac's son, Jacob, continues with this same type of behavior. We, we would see this as a disposition that they carry for sinful tendencies. My question that I would ask you is, uh, do you have any struggles that you're able to share in common with your parents or your grandparents? Um, I don't know if you've ever given this some thought, or maybe for you the answer is, Absolutely. I'm so glad I came to church today. It's my parents' fault. It's not my fault. My parents' fault. Time out. That is not what you get to say from this. As much as we would recognize that you carry a disposition for these sinful tendencies, 
you still have to answer for your wickedness or righteousness. So it's not your parents' fault. We don't get to just blame mom and dad, which again, we get from Adam, that idea of of blaming. And we see that pattern throughout our world. In fact, the very um, worst form of therapy and psychology today, seeking to dig back into your past so that you can put the blame where? On somebody else, on your your parents who come before you. That's not what this is about. Uh, A a predisposition, a a proclivity towards a certain kind of sin. Though you may carry that bent with you, you will still be the one held accountable for that. That doesn't give you justification. It's not rationalization to say, my sin is okay because my dad did it before me, my grandpa did it before him. No, no, no. You will see the pattern passed down, but we will still be those held accountable. So that's the first generational stronghold. Number two is this. Uh, I would call it consequential. So generational strongholds may be the consequences of sin. We can call this the cost of sin or the byproduct of sin or the repercussions that come from sin. The, The best place to find an example for this is in the life of David. You'll remember at one point David... In the book of First and Second Samuel was supposed to be going to war because that's what the kings were to do. But David stayed home, and in staying home and wandering outside one night, looking down upon Bathsheba, he found lust growing in his heart, and the king summoned for her. And in doing so, a baby was created in Bathsheba. Her husband wasn't there. His husband was out. Her husband was fighting. And David, in an attempt, now having committed adultery, which, by the way, in the law is punishable by death, David now summons her husband back to try to get him trickery, thinking that maybe the baby would be his, but he refuses to be with his wife because he knows his comrades are still out in battle. And so instead, David sends Uriah to the front lines so that he will be killed. Uh, that's, kind of, that's called homicide or premeditated murder. Um, what's the law say about that? Punishment for murder is also death. Now, David thought he was getting away with this because now don't, nobody knows until the prophet Nathan showed up. And here's the, here's the story picking up in 2 Samuel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But be, because by doing this, you have shown contempt for the Lord. The son born to you will die. That's that's hard to hear. The the, the child wasn't the one who sinned. And we would know that the child here standing under God's grace is welcomed by God. The, The child is not sent into hell. Yet there are consequences to sin that unfold generationally. In fact, if you study the text well for what happened because of David's sin, you'll find it wasn't only this child. It was three other of his sons that also sequentially died in his lineage. And eventually to Solomon, who's patterning his life after his dad's illegitimate behavior, he himself having 700 wives and 300 concubines, disdaining God's law, the kingdom becomes divided. Where does this start? Where does this come from? It's a type of generational sin that's a consequence. It's the result of the sin. Now, was David going to die? Yes or no? It's not a trick question. The Bible says here, David won't die because of this sin. God forgave him of the sin. And yet, what were there? There were still consequences. And, and maybe that's your story. Maybe you can identify, oh, boy, I remember that, that thing I did. I shouldn't have never done. And, and now I'm paying the price. You, you might say, I know God has forgiven me, but there are long-standing consequences that continue. The question I would have for you would be, are you living with any present-day problems 
as the result of the sins that come from your family. And again, all of us in here would say yes, because we all belong to the same family, coming back, drawing all the way back to Adam, our identity. Uh, one other one, and I won't go into this uh, much further, but you remember uh, Sarai and Abram before they were Sarah and Abraham? And God's promise was, you will have a child. Do you remember, did, did Sarai believe God? No. In fact, she came up with her own plan. Do you remember what it was? That she would give her maidservant to Abram to try to fast track this thing. And, and she, in her doubting of God's promise, committed this sin to which Hagar gave birth to Ishmael. And we know what happened with that family after that. Little Ishmael didn't sin. And Hagar here being brought into this thing, but you can see the consequences that result from that. Those can be for us generational strongholds that continue to plague us. Number three, if it's not predisposition, if it's not consequential, it's sometimes a learned generational stronghold. So this is something that's been, as an example, it's been a model, it's been a pattern. Uh, The best example we have for this, and there are many, there are many throughout uh, the scriptures, Uh, but it's one that I alluded to back on, I think, our very first study on this subject with Eli's sons. Remember I told you those guys were kind of numbskulls? I don't know if you remember that. Uh, Hophni and Phinehas. Man, if you were having a worship at their church, you better find a different church. Hophni and Phinehas were doing it wrong. Uh, Our story in that is in, in 1 Samuel. Eli's sons, so that's Hophni and Phineas were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. <clears throat> now it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whenever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some of the meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, let the fat be burned up first and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. I don't know if you got the picture here, right? There was a proper procedure for the priests to receive their meal. Their dinner came from the pot or the cauldron. Whatever came up, that's what God provided. But that's not what Hophni and Phinehas were doing. They were going after the fat portions. Raise your hand if you like bacon. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> whenever, whenever we got, uh, it's rare, but you know, sometimes we'll do breakfast for dinner. I don't know if you guys ever do that. It's awesome. You should totally do it. But a big plate of bacon right there, you should see it's like a magic trick. It just... Disappears. Everybody's after the bacon. That's Hophni and Phineas's appetite as well. They, they wanted the fat portions, which were to be burned up as an offering to God, but here they're stealing from God. My question to you would be, where did they learn that kind of behavior? Where did they see that? We're given some clues in the text. If you fast forward to chapter 4, you see this about Eli and God's judgment. Uh, when he <clears throat> mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backwards off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died, for he was an old man and he was heavy. He had led Israel for 40 years. Now, how do you think Eli got so heavy? I don't want to pick on the guy here, but if you break your neck from falling off a chair, you probably need to go on a diet, perhaps. 
Uh, now, I don't want, again, I don't want to read too much into this one particular text. I only want to simply show you it shows up here. You have it explicitly mentioned in chapter 2. So, this is confrontation now to Eli by the prophet. Now, a man of God came to Eli and said to him, this is what the Lord said. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors' family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestors' family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves? on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel. So what do you think? Eli, guilty, yes or no? Absolutely guilty. And here, before his sons, as they're growing up in church, showing them a pattern of disdain for God's offering and God's altar, their actions were a direct result of the pattern they watched from their dad. Yeah, generational strongholds can be learned. And so my question to you would be, can you identify any sinful behaviors that have been patterned down from generations either to you or to your siblings? That you say, yeah, I remember when dad used to do that and now my my brother all the time, you just see him doing the same thing. Well, that, that's not just a predisposition. That's because it was it was shown. It was patterned. It was, it was how you grew up living. If you answer this and you say, nope, then you're clueless. And you know what? You're very likely doing the same thing right now to your kids and grandkids without realizing it. There are ways in which our behaviors do not glorify God, but have been sanctioned by our culture. And we need to be very careful with those because it's only a matter of the spirits indwelling to bring conviction, even to a next generation pointing out, yep, man, I do that because that's what I saw my old man doing, or that's what I saw mom doing, or that's how they treated one another in the marriage, and so now I'm goofed up in how I understand marriage. So so that's a learned type of generational stronghold. All right, one last one here uh, can also be inherited. You you and I can't get around this one. In fact, you won't get around all of these. Uh, I, I guarantee you, you have all of these. In one way or another, as you look, whether it's to the immediate generation of your parents or your grandparents, or you go back further, we all are suffering in one way or another with a stronghold of sin on these four criteria. This last one, though, has to do with your nature. Sinners beget sinners. What were your parents? Yeah, so what are you? Make sure we get this very clear. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. That's what you are. That is your nature. You, you have a fallen nature. You have a depravity that is woven through your DNA as one coming from Adam and Eve. Uh, there, there's, a, there's another technical term here. Um, it's, it's different. The inherited does follow from parents. But one called an imputation of sin, which is, which is what we find taught in the scripture in regards to Adam. Uh, we were all in Adam when Adam sinned. And so sin passes to us directly from Adam being our federal head. And in, a, in another sense, uh, from a defense from the book of Hebrews, because the seed of all humanity was found in Adam. So you, you, were, in, you were in the garden, whether you knew it or not, there when sin occurred. 
Well, that, that's sin imputed. Inherited is a little bit different. Inherited is the idea that if you've got, you know, birds don't have mice. Birds have birds, right? Mice have mice and dogs have dogs and cats have cats. What do sinners have? Sinners. And so it's a product of your nature. Psalm 51 teaches us this. David writes, surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. That's where, that's where sin shows up, right in your DNA from the first moment. Additionally, Romans 3, Paul writes, what shall we conclude? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we've already made the charge that Jew and Gentile alike are all under the power of sin. If you're not a Jew, what are you? <laughs> that's it. That's everybody. According to Paul here, everybody's under sin. As it's written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They together have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. It's not that babies are born into this world with a blank, even neutrality to their standing before God. We are born with a depravity because we have inherited that from our parents. In Ephesians 2, uh, I think this is probably one of the most helpful ones. Paul writes, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But before you do anything good or bad, before any action is done on your part, this is what you find. So my question to you would be this. Can you identify any temptations that have no origin in your family, but they seem to just spring out of the blue? You can't blame dad for that one. Can't blame mom for that one. Where did it come from then? It comes from a sinful, fallen nature. That's where it comes from. Okay. How are we doing? Everybody with me? I haven't lost anyone yet? What, my, my whole beginning, this is just my intro, so we've got a ways to go. <laughs> Here, here's why I wanted to go through this. If, if we don't have a proper categorization for generational strongholds, we're not going to know how to fight against them. And I also don't want us walking into it confused, thinking that they're these hocus-pocus types of curses over you. That's not what they are. They are predispositions. They are consequences of sins that have happened before you, or they are learned patterns of behavior that you've watched your mom and dad do. And if all three of those you don't find manifest, then guess what? You're still a sinner because you inherited your DNA and your nature and your essence, who you are, you inherited it from other sinners. So the, these are the categories by which we need to think through. So with all that in mind, let's look at Galatians. We're going to start in chapter 3 and work our way through just a little ways in chapter 4. I'm going, to, I'm going to move a little bit quickly through this because I do want us to come to a point of conclusion. But there's just so much more here than I have time to cover. So Galatians chapter 3. 1660. Page 1660 in the Pew Bibles. We're going to start in verse 26, although we should start in verse 23. Uh, that would be a sermon for another day. Verse 26 of chapter 3. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What, am I, what I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate, he's subject to the guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery 
under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you're a son, God has made you also an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God's. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. Okay, there's a, there's a lot going on here. And uh, before I, I, I dive in, I, let, let me also just describe to you a little bit what's happening here with generational strongholds. The devil will use whatever has happened in your past to hold it over you because there is a war going on. Remember, hide and seek, ready or not, this is what is happening. Um, there is a word that's used here that I want to focus in on, and it's repeated. It shows up in verse 3. It's called basic principles of the world. Does everybody see that? This is what you were a slave to. Now, I'm going to try to be as brief as I can on this. He talks about this, because really in the book of Galatians, there's this larger argument that's going on because the church in Galatia was living by grace. They believed in God's love and forgiveness until some people came and said, well, you got to do these things too. If you really want to be good, if you really want God to love you, you have to obey the Jewish law. And so they, what they did is they left grace and they started to chase after works, starting to define their identity through their works. Now, there's a way of thinking about this. In theology, it's called retribution theology. Now, you're aware of it. I know you are. You just maybe don't know it by that name. Here, you can finish my sentence. Ready? An eye for a, a tooth for a, that's called retribution. Right? If you do bad, what do you get? Okay, and the reverse is also true. If you do good, you get? That's a basic principle of the world. You ever see that in the workplace? Come on. If you do good, what are you likely to get? Get a bonus. Get a promotion, right? Get a bigger paycheck, right? Because that's how the world works. If you do wrong, what do you get? I see I lost some of you on the paycheck. Some of you right there are like, I ain't getting no bigger paycheck. I'm doing it. <laughs> Sorry about that. Bad example. All right. um, the, the, the same follows. If you, if you do bad, you get bad. If you do good, you get, you, do, you get good. And this is the idea of a basic principle of the world. However, this is not how it works. It's actually far more severe. If you do bad, let's just call it what it is. It's called sin. Do you know what sin does between you and God? Separates you. That's right. Oh, I was putting up these lights in our kitchen. Uh, they're, they're on a the string of lights, kind of like you have at Christmas time, right? They're little twinkle lights. And as I was wiring them up, I had some excess. And so I cut, I, I thought I cut off the excess. But as soon as I cut, I noticed all the lights went off. Uh, that's not good. Now, what if I, what if I were to go and uh, polish the lights? Would they turn on then? 
if I really made them shine, if they look really good on the outside, will they come back on? No. no. Uh, what, if, what if I uh, switched them? I, I take one out here and put it over here. Right? If I just move it around, will they come back on? No. Why? Because they have been severed from life. That is what sin does to us. It's not that bad you get bad. It's with sin you get death. Do you know what you inherit from sin? It's really bad news. It's death. And this is why we know that inherited sin is a reality. Because even a little bitty, bitty baby. Do babies die in our world? Yes. Yeah. They're, they're not even old enough to be aware of sins that they're doing. And yet death is still theirs. Why? Because they have that inherited sinfulness that exists within them. That penalty of sin shows up whether or not you know if you're sinning. Because you are a sinner. And so that's, that's really the bad news of what's happening here. Um, basic principles is repeated again. If you look down with me back in verse 9, jump down a little bit further. He says, but now that you know God or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to these weak and miserable principles? All right, this is the stronghold. You, everybody with me? This is the stronghold. Whatever it is in your life that you have inherited from grandma and grandpa, mom and dad, it will not be solved by you just being better. You just got to work harder. You just got to go to church. You got to give a little bit more money and then God will be pleased with you. Do you know what that is? That's a stronghold in your life that we need to have a weapon against. This idea that you and I can achieve righteousness by our works is a basic principle of the world and it will enslave you. Paul gives a picture here within the text. He says it's, it's like a child. Um, and he, the background of this is that the law is demanding. Right? I mean, that's the law. You, you can't go to the priest and say, can you give me a break? Because the priest will die if he doesn't uphold the law. The law is extremely precise. It's like this... He, he references it as a taskmaster or a, a, an instructor in school. Do you ever have one of those teachers that you just can never please? Anybody have one of those? Right? They knew all the answers and try as hard as you might. You just can never, you just can never get it right. That's what the law is for you. The law is precise in your hardest efforts. The best you can do, you will never get it right. You will always, because the law and the power that it has has been rendered power, powerless to perform righteousness because you have sinned. And sin will prevent you from ever being able to achieve it. So what he's saying is here is that it's like, it's like being a child and having this taskmaster over you. But Jesus comes to redeem those under the law who, like children, to take them from being little and grow them into sons. And now as sons, you now carry the full weight of responsibility given to you by God. You're part of the family. You're, you're adopted into a new family. That, again, I need more time to preach that. that. That's not my primary point. But if you think that you can achieve God's favor by works, it's a basic principle of this world, and that's a stronghold that needs to be torn down. It's like this, it's, and this is what God thinks of it. Imagine you were invited over to a friend's house for dinner, and, and they knew you were coming, and so they set the table real nice, and they got the silverware there, and they bought the food ahead of time, and, and they're grilling it up outside and seasoning it, and they got in the crock pot for hours, right? And then you show up, and they seat you, and they serve you, and you sit down, but you say, ah, 
you know, I need, I need to do something here. And so you take the beautiful uh, dining set and you push it off to the side and you go help yourself to their cupboards and get your own plate and your own fork and knife and put it down in front of you. And they kind of look at you like this. And then they serve you the steak or the lobster or shrimp or whatever it is that you're having, side of potatoes and coleslaw. I mean, it's just beautiful plateful, right? And you say, ah, that's nice, but I got to make my own. And so you push that aside and you go out to the grill and you're out there making your own. And the guests are like, what's this? Why did we invite this person? Do you see the offense that that creates to the host? That is what we are like before God. When we try to earn righteousness for the work that he has already done, you don't add a thing to what Jesus has credited to you. You only operate in a new life from what he has done. Paul says this to the Galatians in chapter 5. He says, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. That's the stronghold. I'm, 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 boy, geez. I'm, I apologize, guys. Look, I'm going a little long here. Let me try to wrap this up. Are you all on, on board with me so far? All right, let me work through these conclusions very quickly then. Number one, your identity is in Christ now. Your identity is in Christ. If you go back to chapter three, look at verse 26. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Well, I'm a, I mean, I'm a, I'm a flunker or, or I'm a, a a Thompson, or, or I'm a, a Blockland, or, or I'm a, a Towns. Or, hold on a minute. You, you've been given a new family. You've been given a new identity. Your parents aren't your only parents anymore. You now have a new father. This shows up in two ways. You have an outward conformity, right? Because now you belong to a new lineage. And you have an inward change because now you have a new spirit. There's something that has changed for you. You now belong to a new family. You now belong, have an inside change. In fact, you find this in the text as well. I love this passage. If you look with me in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba. Do you guys know what Abba means? Daddy. So uh, I, we don't, you, should, you need to write that in the margin of your Bible. You need to write daddy because father still sounds a little bit like, Father, right? It sounds a little bit. But daddy is what my five-year-old calls me. Uh, if you think of all languages of the world, little kids have a hard time learning consonants. And so little children, they double consonate a sound. So dada, right? We, we've heard that. Well, in Hebrew, the word for father is av. And so if you're a little kid, you're going to say ava, which gets pronounced as abba. Do you see it right here? It's not of, not because that's what that means. Father, you would say of. You'd say Abba. Abba means what? Daddy. Means Daddy. That's the spirit that lives within you because you have a new identity. Everybody with me on this? This this will tear down that stronghold if you get your arms wrapped around this. The best place to see this Second Corinthians five. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And probably the best verse of all, Titus. Man, this is a beautiful one. It's in the top 10 most important verses in the New Testament. He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saves us through the washing and rebirth. Look at that word. Born again, born of a new family. Rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become Heirs having the hope 
of eternal life, which moves me to my second conclusion, which is this, your inheritance comes from God. You might have inherited a sin nature from your parents. And what does sin get you? Come on, what does sin end in? Death. Guess now what your inheritance is through a new family. It's life. It's life. In fact, we, we read it, um, Maury read it for us in, in Romans. I'm just going to go back there real quick. Romans 6, just to remind you, if you want to write it down or turn there too, Romans 6.22. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. You are now an heir of the king and you will receive Life. So what do we do with this? Just a couple of thoughts. Remember, what are we talking about here? We're talking about war. There is a war going on. This passage in Galatians, I think, helps us. And I want to ask the question, what, what is it you're wearing to battle in this war? And my first application is, don't wear your own works as righteousness. Don't wear your own works. Instead, clothe yourself with Christ. And this is exactly what Paul says in verse 26 of chapter 3. He says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. The greatest weapon against generational strongholds is recognizing you have a new lineage. Is this making sense? Are you guys connecting the dots on this? The, the generational sins that sit above you, that weigh heavily on you, the battle of the devil pressing them upon you can be dissolved by your weapon of saying, I belong to a new family now. I call my heavenly father, daddy, and he will come to my beck and call. He will watch over me. He will protect me. My life is governed by him and I will one day inherit from him life. That goes beyond what I've inherited from my parents. My, my challenge just in, in concluding this is, is to remind you that your children and your grandchildren, um, they walk in your shadow. Just like Sadie said, they're, they're walking in your shadow and, and you are maybe passing on to them generational strongholds unless we change direction. And just like my little daughter kind of moving me over so she could walk in that shadow I challenge you, look into your own life and say, where do I need to redirect things? Where do I need to confess wrongdoing so that I can help my children and my grandchildren follow after Christ? Because that's who I'm following. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.